what you fought through, and then you're here. And uh, I don't know how you f- normally feel when you step up onto a scale. I don't know if you step onto it with certain sense of uh, anticipation, certain sense of foreboding. But I don't know if you've ever had an experience on a scale quite like Danny Cahill. So Danny stepped up on the scale, leaned forward to look at the number, saw the number pop up, threw up his hands in celebration, then a flood of confetti, a confetti explosion happens on the NBC television set. People start cheering, his family starts running to give him a hug, and he is celebrating. He is the winner of season eight of The Biggest Loser. And so if you're not familiar with that show, it's a reality TV show where it's a weight loss competition. And uh, he uh, just won $250,000. And his journey started seven months before uh, where he said that this, this thing, this thing, this weight has taken over my life and I just want my life back. And at the time, he weighed 430 pounds, and then seven months later, he stood on the scale victorious as the number 191 popped up, 191 pounds. He had lost 239 pounds in seven weeks. And to put that in visual scale, that's me. Like, he lost a me, and that's amazing. And uh, he celebrated, and... um, But unfortunately for Danny, the life that he got back didn't last. And within one year or within six months, he had gained 100 pounds of it back. And then uh, within the year was back up at just under 300 pounds. And the um, producers started recognizing a disturbing trend on the contestants in The Biggest Loser is that so many of them would make these remarkable transformations where they'd lose significant amount of weight, but they couldn't maintain it. They couldn't uh, keep it off. So one of the things they did is they commissioned a, they hired some so med students, maybe this is a research opportunity in your future, but they hired some different doctors to do medical. Uh, medical study on all of the different contestants who had gone through the show over the you know eight or nine years of the show and tried to get a large enough sample so as many people would agree to be studied. And they found a couple really remarkable things about their experience. They found that the average contestant would come in weighing 328 pounds, and then the average contestant after six years, the average weight was 290. So some drop, but not uh, drastic. But several of the researchers said that in their study, the thing that was so remarkable to them was just how vigilant or almost vicious the body would be in trying to return itself to its previous state. The lead researcher said, you know, we've always known about the condition of homeostasis. So that wasn't something new to us. And then he defines, he says, that's the condition of equilibrium, the natural resistance to change. He says, it characterizes all self-regulating systems from bacteria to a frog, to a human body, to a family, to an organization, to an entire culture. He says it applies to psychological states as well as behavioral and physical functioning. We all, all kind of living organisms can fall into this state of equilibrium 
kind of status quo. And he said, the homeostasis doesn't distinguish between what we would call change for the better or change for the worse. It just is vigorous in fighting any change at all. And he said, and Danny was one of the prime examples where he had to go on a caloric reduction diet. I mean, some of us would just look and say, well, it's just simple math. Calories in, calories out. Just, it's simple math. You'll maintain it. But actually, that wasn't so. And he had to go in where he had to consume less than 1,200 calories a day just to maintain the weight loss. And then anymore, it started spiking. And so we didn't realize how aggressive the body would want to be to try and get itself back. And every single person who's ever tried to change some type of bad habit or break something, uh, a habit that they have, you know how hard it is to actually experience change. And a researcher out of Stanford, B.J. Fogg, doesn't even like the f terminology of breaking bad habits. He says you can't really break them. You really have to unravel them. Because if you think about it, many of them, uh, it's been, uh, you've been wrapped up in a certain way of being for so long, you can't just break it. You have to unravel it. So in some sense, if you think, all right, it took you 10 years to get here, it's going to take probably 10 years to get you out of here, not just seven, seven weeks. And so there's power in stasis. But one of the beautiful things is there's not just power. We all know that from a negative standpoint, how hard it is to break bad habits, but it's also how hard it is to alter and break good habits. So if you can actually progress in a way that's healthy and grow to a very healthy, sustainable, um, healthy place, then that actually can stabilize you for a long time. And that's a healthy metaphor to think about where we are kind of the state of our church. Because we've been around for three and a half years. We're moving out of the toddler stage and getting ready for kindergarten. So we just started preschool. It's about time to start kindergarten. And we want to think, all right, what's our goal? Our goal as a church is to plant a church with generational impact, an anchor church in this community that has generational impact um, for years to come. So we want to experience slow, steady, healthy growth and then come to a point where we can have uh, generational and global impact. So what does that look like? So we're going to be talking about some of the movements and some of the changes we're going to uh, make in the next couple weeks and months to try and help us along in that process. What do we need to do to become healthy? What kind of natural size does the Lord want us to be so we can accomplish the things that he's calling us to do and accomplish in this community? And all of you know what it's like. You know, there's kind of two dangers. You can be a part of an organization that becomes kind of so big and bloated, it, it has a hard time accomplishing anything. But you can also be a part of an organization that's so lean and nimble or uh, resource poor that it doesn't have the strength to accomplish anything. So you want to find that sweet middle ground where you can really be solid, stable, and healthy. But now before we move into that discussion, I, what I want us to do is actually talk about, so we're going to look at Matthew 4, 23, but that's just going to be a launching pad that's going to send us to Psalm 95. So you can turn either place. We're going to spend most of our time in Psalm 95. But we're going through all year, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew. And it's a training manual, both for churches and disciples. How do we live as faithful followers of Jesus. And what we have in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, is we have a, a paradigm, a summary statement of Jesus' ministry. It says, and he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. 
So really, and then this actually gets repeated verbatim at the end of chapter 9, right before chapter 10, and then altered and repeated a little bit a couple other times throughout the gospel. So this is kind of Matthew's, this is his summary statement. It's almost like his mission statement for Jesus' ministry. These are his core values. These are the things that he did. So if you want to think about, all right, what are the actual habits and practices that a healthy body of Christ needs to take part in so you can become a healthy body? It's these three things, teaching, preaching, healing. And so the question is, how can we work all of those healthy practices into our life so we can become healthy and whole and stable? So real quick, let's just think about those three things. We'll kind of take them out of order, but think about healing. Healing. Now, when you think about when you think about healing, often we kind of think about instantaneous, like bodily healing. So even in this example, they bring to him the lame, and then they can walk. They bring the dumb, and then they can speak. The deaf, and then they can hear. But the word for healing, the Greek word is therapuo. I mean, you understand that therapuo, therapy. So you think about the dynamic of therapy. Sometimes healing can come really quickly, but sometimes the the therapeutic process takes a long time to work in and work out. You know, when we were at our church in Alabama, I was always intrigued because we'd have a lot of people go in for different surgeries, you know, hip replacement, knee replacement, a lot of different surgeries. And on multiple occasions, the orthopedic surgeon who was doing the surgery would, uh, you know, some many cases like Cynthia and I would be the only kind of family that were there in people's life. And so they'd call us and they'd tell us, all right, tell us, you know, uh, you, know you, you kind of have some, you got some, how can I say this? You got some stubborn folks in the country. And oftentimes they call us back and say, all right, here's Mr. So-and-so. We know he's a knucklehead. And actually, he doesn't need the knee replacement. He just needs to do the therapy. We're doing the surgery because we know he won't do the therapy without the surgery. But we need to know that you are going to help him commit. He has to have the therapy. And it's going to be a long, slow, steady process. He's not going to hop out of here and be able to jump back into his field and get on his tractor tomorrow. Long, slow, steady process. That's the nature and dynamic of the therapeutic process. And that's the way it is with our soul. Often the healing that God brings through Christ, or the healing is complete. It's total. But very rarely is it instantaneous. Often it, it works itself out through the long life. And the therapy that comes, the healing, the things that have been broken. Our relationship with God has been broken, that has to be healed. Our relationship with ourselves, internal um, relationship has been broken, that needs to be healed. Our relationship with others has been broken, needs to be healed. Our relationship to the world is broken, needs to be healed. All those are in the process of healing. Then think about teaching. Teaching and preaching, proclaiming, they're, they're different. And Matthew distinguishes between the two. So we need both things. And teaching is more cognitive. It's more didactic. It's more interactive and engaging. Um, it's more personal. Um, in teaching, what you're doing is you're trying to gather up and focus the central kind of message, and then you're helping people define things, helping them defend things, helping them understand and articulate. But then he distinguishes that from proclaiming, from preaching the gospel. And what I want you to use is don't think so much preaching, in essence, what I'm doing now, because it's more than that. The proclaiming is really happens in the context of worship. So really, worship is the first step for you to experience really all three of those things. 
the teaching, the healing, and the proclaiming. So let's think about for a minute what worship is and why we do it the way we do it here. Now, now I want you to turn with me to Psalm 95, because Psalm 95 really is one of the best places in the Bible to learn about what worship is. You know, I don't know what you think about when you think about worship. Probably uh, every person in this room, their mind goes to a different thing or a different place. You know, what's interesting. If you asked any Christian in the Western world from about 750 A.D. till about 1978 uh, A.D., Everybody would have just assumed what worship is. But then something, really probably actually probably about the 60s, something happened and then it was just like we're living in the land of judges where everybody, um, there's no king in the land and everybody does what's right in their own ears. And then there was this worship turmoil. And so even at the churches I served in in Kentucky and Alabama, both had experienced major church splits over worship. Worship music. So you think, all right, what? So you might be thinking about a, a hundred different things in this room about what worship is. But Psalm 95 is one of the best places to learn about what worship is. Really, Psalm 92, 105 is this beautiful collection of psalms teaching us about what it is. And so what I want to look at this morning, you think about, all right, what's the what, the why, and the how of worship? So follow along Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hands. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and they put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. So here in this whole section is giving you a beautiful little summary and a window into what is real, true worship. So notice the what, what is it? Notice first the whole being is involved. Notice all the different sensory language. You have your voice. Today, if you, you hear a voice, but you sing, let us sing, make a joyful noise, make a joyful noise, songs of praise. So there's voice, but then there's also physicality, kneeling. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. But then there's hearts. The heart is engaged where you don't want to be like the people who have cold hearts. Their, their ears are closed and their hearts are cold. The whole body is taking up. There's a joyful and emotional component. There's a kneeling, a willful component, obedience. But then there's also a hearing and a cognitive component. It's actually one of the primary arenas that you experience the totality of healing that you need. Healing in your mind, healing in your heart and your emotions, and then healing in your life. And this is the glory of the Christian gospel. The beauty and the glory and the power of it is that it takes up all of you. 
It's not just cognitive. It's not just emotional. It's not just social. It actually transforms all of you, the whole being and the whole person. But the reality is if you don't experience all three, you haven't experienced real worship. Real worship has all three components, mind, heart, will. Now we need to think about just kind of, I have a little caution here just to caution you to think about the proper range of emotive expressiveness. Because one of the things we want, we want to create an appropriate range where people can express these things, where they can make joyful noise and they can experience and express joy that's in their heart. There's two emotions that have to have for real worship. It's reverence and joy. And so part of, as a leadership, our responsibility is to create an atmosphere and an environment where you can express both. But that can be challenging because we all express those things in different ways. I'm so fascinated, even just by our two daughters who are 14 months apart. I mean, almost as close as you can be. And they express their emotions so different. And it's so easy for one to look at the other and think they're either just loony or they're so stuffy. But actually both of us, so one of them, when she's really excited and happy, gets very quiet. And it just kind of wells up and you can just see her like, and, but you, you should never assume that her quiet is not, she's not emotionally engaged. And then the other is just explosive. It comes just flooding out. She's the kind that I like to buy things just not for her, just to see the explosive reaction. And uh, you can take your guess which parent they... <laughs> they follow after. Um, but that's the way it is. And so we want to create an environment where people can authentically express their emotion that they're feeling. But don't assume, like if somebody is kind of, so don't assume that the only way to express your emotions is very uh, gregarious and explosive. That is one way, but it's not the only way. So I speak as an introvert on champion other introverts in the room. So joy and reverence, those are the two things that have to be there. But notice it ascribes worth, it has reasons, it has an understanding. We worship for, verse 3, the Lord our God is a great God. He is the creator of the heavens and earth. For, we know the reasons and we can articulate the reasons. And then for, in verse 7, he is our God, we are the people of his pastures. We celebrate his work in creation and we've experienced his work in redemption. And so we sing and we celebrate. Now, why do we do that? Because this is the way real change happens. This is the way you actually work teaching into your life, into your heart, and then out into the world. It's the bridge that gets things from your beliefs to your character and to your life. So real worship is what moves the teaching from your head into your heart. It's one of the practices that drives the gospel down deep into us. And the goal, notice the goal of this worship is not just to see God as useful, but you encounter him as beautiful. He becomes beautiful. You know, not just like in a business associate who we can have a business partnership to bring about my good life, but he becomes beautiful. I don't know what it's like at your work, but um, one, uh, many organizations are wrestling with how to make meetings more effective. Like there's a famous book, Death by Meeting. So I don't know if you've ever experienced that. 
Uh, last year, Adam Grant, you know, he's an organizational, an organizational psychologist for the Wharton Business School. So he goes around and tries to help organizations become healthy. And on his podcast, he had this interesting uh, guest who they call him the meeting czar for Cisco, so, you know, the technology company. So his whole job is to go around to every meeting, like with his clipboard, and he is judging you during that meeting, and it's his job to make them more effective and more efficient. So he says, you know, they have specific company policies, and they love him there. They say, it's been wonderful. We have so many less wasted time meetings. And so he says, all right, a, co a coworker wants a meeting with you. You get very clear. What's it for? What's the purpose? Do they have an agenda? Is there an action item list? Are there next steps? Do, how can we make it more efficient? Should it be a standing meeting, or do we actually need to sit down? In these meetings, there's no chit-chat. There's no relational problems. We don't want to hear about anybody's feelings. What we want to know, what are the goals? What are the outcomes? That's the meetings are. Now, I don't know what the meetings are's life is like at home. But could you imagine the scene if his wife came up to him and said, honey, I just feel like we're disconnected. I really want us to get away this weekend and reconnect. And he said, well, what's it for? What's the purpose? You got an agenda? Where are your action items? What's your goals? What are the outcomes? She might say, outcome? The outcome is I'm going to take my shoe off and hit you in the head. That's the, next, that's the next action item. You know, there's just certain relational dynamics that those things just don't really work for. And what we experience, real worship is the goal, the why, is to enter into his presence. Notice, that's the goal in verse 2. Let us come and enter into his presence. Let us, in verse 7, hear his voice. That's what Matthew's talking about when it says Jesus went out preaching. He was proclaiming the voice of the Lord because the goal is to draw people together so they hear his voice and they are connected relationally. And that's what real worship is meant to do. It's meant to connect you relationally to the living Lord. So how does that happen? Notice all of the or three things. It's corporate, it's rhythmic, it's restful. So notice the first thing, how's it happen is corporate. You know, I really think, you know, I'm from, I'm from Georgia, and I really think we need a Southerner's translation, like a new SV, the new Southerner's version. Because there's just a lot of good biblical truth you don't get unless you're a Southerner. Like, notice all of the, you just won't get it if you don't have y'alls. See, these are all you plurals. It's all come let us, let us, let us, let us, for we, y'all, y'all, y'all. It's all y'all. There's no you singular. It's all we. And the reality is re there's certain dynamics that can only happen in corporate worship that you cannot experience alone. And I actually say that with trepidation as an introvert. I like time alone. I like going up on the mountain by myself. But there's just certain worship realities that you cannot experience alone. It happens us. It's corporate. It reminds me of uh, 
when C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, part of the Inklings, you know, they had this group of people who would meet uh, every Tuesday and Friday at their local pub. I think they meet at 10 in the morning on Tuesday, so I don't know. And uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was one, C.S. Lewis was one, Charles Williams was one. When Charles Williams, he was the first of the group to die, and Lewis, uh, as he was trying to console himself, said, you know, I thought to myself, well, at least now I'll have more of Toller's, I'll have more of Tolkien. But then he realized without Charles there, he didn't have more of Tolkien. He actually had less. Because there was realities about who he is that could only be drawn out by Charles. And there's realities of the experience of who God is that can only be drawn out with you. That I can't do it. Cynthia can't do it. You can't do it alone. You can't do it with your podcast. You can't do it alone in your uh, home. It's only drawn out in the context of one another. Come let us. And what you need to know is fascinating is notice it's let us sing. It's not let the band sing. Let the professionals, let the performers, the concert goers. It's let us. The primary instrument in biblical worship is the voice of the congregation. And it's let us. So it's not a performance where you're a spectator. The lead instrument of worship is our voice. But then notice it's also rhythmic. There's a certain rhythm to it. We sing, he speaks, we respond. Joyful praise, thanksgiving, confession, hear his voice. And this rhythm actually has a profound effect on how we've intentionally shaped the services. See, the rhythm is more than just the type of music. It's actually the flow of the whole service. See, the structure of the service tells a story. And all great worship services, all great liturgies in, in, throughout the last really three, 4,000 years of church history have had a certain shape to it. Now, for our men's and women's Bible studies, we're going through Leviticus, or going through the, the Pentateuch, and this past week was on Leviticus, and we know we're behind on the podcast, but we'll get it up. When we do, we need you to listen to it, because that's an important one, to understanding why we shape the worship service the way we do. I've been teased with the, the worship team that Leviticus is the most important book for understanding worship in the Bible. And then, you know, it's kind of like one of those, you know, preacher jokes, which most of them aren't funny. But... <laughs> The point is that the point of the book of Leviticus is what's required to enter into God's presence. And that's the whole goal of worship. What does it require to enter into God's presence? And the worship service is not modeled on a modern entertainment event. So a modern entertainment event is you have the warm-up act, then you have the main show, and then you go home. So that's not how a worship service is, is structured. It's actually structured on this threefold dynamic of what's required to enter into God's presence. And you can actually see this movement in Leviticus because you can look at a victim and it's filled with all these sacrifices, all these sacrifices. So what's the point with all of these things? And sometimes it's very confusing to make sense of them. One way to think about it, and uh, I think about it kind of like golf. So hang on, just, just follow with me. A couple of weeks ago, somebody said, you know, I'd really like to, they're an adult, just turned 40, said, I'd like to learn how to play golf. Can you, can you teach me? So, oh, I don't know. That's, that's, that's a hard challenge. But all right, let's think of it. So you think you want to learn about golf. There's all types of like pieces. You got to learn the grip, you got clubs, the putt, you learn to putt. There's all these kind of different things. But it's often, like the way you learn about it is you need to learn by putting first. But it's, all, it's not really until you actually see the progression 
that you understand how all the pieces fit together. You understand, oh, this is how you begin. You start this way. And then here's the approach. You approach this way. And then here's how you end. This is the whole point. Get the ball in the hole. There's a certain progression. And when you're going through Leviticus, it can be a challenge because first it gives you all the different components. But then it's not until chapter 9 that you actually see the progression. And then once you see the progression, it, it makes sense. Say, ah, I see how it's fit. You have all these different sacrifices, like um, sacrifices for like guilt sacrifices, sin sacrifices. But what you see is there's a movement. The first kind of whole range is the sacrifices of atonement, guilt, sin, the things that get you in. The first step to entering into God's presence is you enter in. You come. And we can't just come as we are. We, we need a sacrifice. We need the blood of the lamb that brings us in. So first step is to come in. Then there's this whole series of sacrifices that like ascension offering, burnt offering, whole offering, but they're all the, basically the same thing. That's the second stage. That's the approach. They all ascend up. So first step is you come in. Second step, you ascend up. And then there's a whole cycle of offerings like peace offering, fellowship offering, Thanksgiving offering. All of those are basically the same category. That's the whole point of the sacrificial system. It's there you eat with. So you come in, you ascend up, and then you eat with, you fellowship with, you sit with the great king at his table. He has beckoned you into his presence. So you come into his presence and you hear his voice. And that's actually the cycle in how our worship service is designed. The first stage, it's like a journey into the God's presence. The first stage is we gather together and we do this first thing where we hear his call that says, come in, come in. And that's why we gather together, we sing, um, we have the meet and greet. It's not just so we can have a time where we spread one another's germs and say hello. Uh, so you can, you can see who you're journeying with into the presence of the Lord. And then that culminates in the time of confession. And the whole point of the time of confession is that's what's required to bring, bring us in. We have to confess our sins so we can come in. And then we have a cycle of, of a couple songs that are ascension songs that then bring us up. We ascend up. And then once we're up, we fellowship with the Lord at word and table. We come to his table, so we're celebrating with him. We're hearing his word, and we're feasting at his table. And then once we've had our time of fellowship with him, he then sends us out into the world to accomplish his will and his ways, but we go carrying his blessing with us. We now have the word of his, his love is on us, his power is in us, and his hope is in us. And we go carrying those things out in the world. It's a journey. It's a cycle. And the whole goal is to enter into his presence so we can hear his voice. Enter in, rise up, sit with. And that's why it's so important to regularly, weekly, yearly habituate yourself to entering into his, his presence. So the whole goal is not just to hear the gospel, it's actually to walk through it. So every Sunday when you come, you're actually walking through the different steps of the gospel. That's why it's so important to have time to have as soon as the kids are able. And we know it's hard because they're young and squirmy and it's hard. It's hard for adults to sit here through the whole time on those hard benches back there. But the whole goal is that you habituate yourself. So after 10, 15, 20 years, you've habituated yourself of walking through the steps of the gospel, of confessing your sin, of entering into his presence, of ascending up and celebrating with him. And then the goal, the final, the great goal is that it's restful. 
Notice in verse 11, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Because they hardened their hearts. They heard his voice, but then they turned away from it. So they didn't enter into his rest. The whole goal is that it renews you. It restores you. It's restful. The whole goal is to lay burdens down and get them off your back so you can rise limber and lighter and your soul is encouraged because you've heard the power and the sound of his voice. So that's the whole goal is to hear his voice, hear him speak to you personally. One pastor that I admire uh, also spent uh, years at a small little country church, and he tells the story about one of the first people he met in the town and actually got to know pretty well was kind of the, you know, in small towns, every kind of small town has the notorious sinner that everybody knows. You know, they're the, they're the town center. So he said pretty, pretty soon he got to know the, not like the town center where you shop, but like the town center. And he got to know the town center. And uh, he said he was functionally illiterate. He's kind of older gentleman, physically disabled, and said he was mad. Possibly psychologically mad, but just mad. Mad at his wife, mad at the government. Mad at the community, mad at foreigners, mad at everyone. He was mad. And through some kind of strange that he slowly started attending the church. He was doing this long series on the book of Romans and started kind of getting interested. And then slowly the book of Romans and the word started kind of chiseling away the hardness. And then one day his wife called the pastor and said, I don't know what you got. You got to come like talk to him because he's changing. And actually it's one of those weird things because, you know, stasis is so strong. He was changing for the good, but it was disrupting things. And she goes, you got to come talk to him. He's changed. Like he's not as angry as he used to be. I don't know what's happening. And so he went and he sat down and he said, you know, well, you know, you know Jimbo, how's it going? I just noticed things are like, how? How are you? You feel you're doing well. You, you know, they just want to talk to me. He asked him what's happening. And uh, his response was, he said, well, here, you know, they kind of cut to the point. He said, here's the thing. Um, I now, for the first time in my life, have an answer to the voices I hear. And now coming, you know, young pastor coming out of the city from seminary and you hear somebody say that, we, we're not really trained how to deal with that. So he didn't know what to say. So, oh, the, the voices, um, like whose voice, like is it the voice of your mother or voice of your father? And this man was illiterate, but he knew enough to swipe away that psychobabble. He said, no, 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 don't patronize me. So no, it's the voices, and they've always been in my head, and they would say things like, um, you know, you, you ain't good for nothing, you're worthless, you're just an old drunk, you're an old illiterate, you'll never be anybody. And then they would, they would just kind of fire into my mind, and I would just, I would react, I would respond, but now I have, I have a voice that I, I say back. And he said, I realize that uh, through the gospel, there's now no condemnation for me. And I'm accepted, and he loves me. And when I hear that voice that you ain't nobody, you ain't never going to be nothing, I smile and say, maybe you're right. I might not ever be nothing, but I already am something. I'm someone who's loved. And he goes to Romans 8, and then he responds with the voice of the Lord, combating the voice of 
trial and condemnation. And so when the voice, the whole goal is in worship, you hear his voice. So when you're in the world and the voice of guilt starts to attack you, you have a response where you know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or when the voice of suffering comes and you say, woe is me or why is me? You have another voice that says, I consider this present suffering not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to those who are in Christ Jesus. Or when the voice of anxiety comes and you're tempted to be anxious over the financial market or bacterial spreading or whatever can cause you anxiety, you can say, I have a voice that says, I know that in all these things, God is working for the good of those who love him and are called to according to his purposes. And when the voices of accusation, you come, you can say, if God is for me, who can be against me? And when the voices of self-pity come, you can say, if he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things. So if I don't have it, it's because a good father doesn't want me to have it. And when the voices of separation start to attack, you have another stronger voice that says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor things present, nor things to come, nor angels, nor powers, nor principalities, nor anything in all of creation can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that's meant to happen in worship where you hear his voice. And that becomes the loudest voice in your life. And so that's the whole goal of worship is to get us there. Now, I went way over my time. So let me summarize really quickly why we want to have a motivation for going to two services. Because what we want you to experience is more worship, more relationships, more security. That's kind of our goal for our, our church. Um, one is more worship. We want more people, both in our community and in our congregation, to regularly experience worship and to hear the voice that can transform them and change them and renew them. And it's not just for people outside of the community. We want that. We want to be planted in and to grow, but we also, um, I, I feel bad because we have such wonderful, faithful, sacrificial volunteers who are serving our children and serving the church, but we need, they need need to be in the worship to hear it because it's what uh, renews and restores us. You think about moving to a place of healthy stasis, you need healthy uh, inputs, nutrition, and then healthy exercise outputs. Healthy inputs is worship and teaching. Healthy outputs is service and sacrifice, and you need both. And so we want to try to provide the opportunities for people to experience both. So we need more worship, uh, more relationships. One of the things we know that the most important things to help people grow is in relationships. So one of the challenges as we seek to grow is we know that one of the beautiful things about a smaller church is the relational connections you could have. But we really want to try our best to maintain relational connections. That's why things like Table for Ten are so important because it can be a first step to get connected. One of the things we're going to do is when we um, start two services the week before Easter, we're very intentionally going to have a 30-minute block in between them that we want to really try and guard. And that's going to be the opportunity to connect with people. So please value that time because that's the way you can connect and see people and have uh, conversations and stay connected. 
You know, one of the things that the Trinity Kids training that we want to, we talked about this past couple weeks ago, and uh, one of the things we want to focus on this year is I want to really dedicate some of my time and mental energy to think about what are the things that uh, we as a church can provide for children to help um, plant them in the gospel so that they can be prepared, uh, stable and strong, no matter what winds comes their way. And we were looking at all types of different studies, and I was fascinated by it's one study from the American Enterprise Institute who studied, it's one of the largest studies done on kind of millennials and their faith and which ones uh, have held on to their faith through their 20s and which ones have left it behind. And it's really interesting, some of the findings. And one of the things they found is that more often than not, I don't know how I'm going to word it, um, people who left the faith behind, like people who are, uh, who are no longer involved in the church never really were a part of it to begin with. And what they found is the most important decisive factor for maintaining the faith was healthy multi-generational relationships. How many people did they know of multiple generations? It wasn't just kind of the narrow age-specific group. It was healthy multi-generational relationships. And said in a world we live in of the breakdown of thick communities, that becomes so important. So one of the things we want to do, one of our big goals just institutionally and structurally is see how important it is to provide stable structures for both kids and us to have multi-generational relationships and connections. And it was so fascinating, even at a meeting, as we started talking about that, people um, started saying, yeah, I think about my life. When I was in, you know, middle school, it was this person, and everybody had a name, a name. You know, it was my, uh, at our, our church in Georgia, the most effective Sunday school teacher we had was Mr. Sid, who at that time was in his 70s. He taught first and second grade Sunday school. So you might think you don't have the energy for it. Mr. Sid would just open up the door. He'd look at those kids and he'd say, come on in. Mr. Sid loves you and Jesus loves you. That was his teaching strategy. And he was one of the best teachers we had because they knew him and they had the, the depth of relationships. And so many people just started naming names. It was this person when I was in middle school. It was this person when I was in high school. It was this person when I was in college. And think about what a beautiful legacy and testimony it would be if 20 years from now, it's your name that people are naming. This is the person who, when I was so tempted to go off straight, they helped me. They stabilized me. They discipled me. They just loved me. They just wiped my nose and patted my head and just loved me. But it's that stability of relationships. And that's the third thing, more stability. That's one of the things we're hoping that this will help bring. So as we move forward, uh, on Sunday, April 5th, we're going to transition to two services. The first one will be 9 in the morning. The second one will be 1045. And our goal, one of our big goals is to uh, really encourage as many people as possible to attend one service and then serve in the other. And in many ways, you know, we won't be able to accomplish the things we want to, we want to accomplish if people um, don't attend one and serve one. You really need both. You need to attend so you can receive and then serve so uh, you can give. And our hope is to bring more stability. So parents, we really want uh, you to commit, you know, try and commit your kids to kind of have one class. One of our challenges is just the classes are full. Like in the kindergarten and first grade class, there's anywhere from 25 to 30 kids in there. And it doesn't matter how much you love kindergartner and first graders, 30 of them are just too many. We got to get it down to maybe 10, 12, you know, 14 is a, is, is a 
a good kind of range. So uh, that's why that kind of inter, inter, intermediate time is going to be so important because we'll need to, you know, it's not going to do us a whole lot of good if everybody just still comes to one. We've got to try and split them out <laughs> in some way. But the big idea is to have as many volunteers as possible, attend one and serve one because those are the things that we know we need to be a healthy institution and organization. Now, what I'm going to do this morning, let's see, I've gone way over, and since we're talking about loving and taking care of the children's workers, we're going to be... Um, we're going to be aware of this. So, Cynthia, we're, we're, we're going to not do communion, even though we normally do communion as part of the symbolic coming to the Lord's table, experience his feast, we hear his voice. We're not going to do it uh, this week. Let me pray for us as a church. Let me pray for Ted and their ministry in Ecuador and their family. And then we come and then we'll do the offering and, and uh, have the final uh, couple songs.